0: Welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. Hi, everyone. I am always so, so very grateful to uh, have the opportunity to be here uh, with you. Um, This is just fun for me, as I've I've mentioned uh, many times in, in the past. If you don't know me, my name is Ken Carlson. I, at one time, was one of the pastors here at Oak Hills and um, it's, I'm thankful to be back. Now we have a lot to work at today uh, and it's a complicated and somewhat heavy subject. So we're going to have to work hard together but let's jump right into the scripture if you didn't mind. We're going to kind of rest on this one verse the entire time. So if, if you would stand, give your attention to God's word uh, from Romans chapter 12. Mike uh, spoke on Romans chapter 12 verse 2 and I'm kind of Taking a one step back to Romans chapter twelve, verse one, this is what the apostle Paul says: Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Let me say it one more time: Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. To offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Paul tells us here, as it's obvious, that we are to offer our bodies. When he refers to our bodies here, he's talking about our physical, material bodies. We are to offer them to God and, by extension, uh, to the world as a living sacrifice. Now, we will get into more of what that means practically in the details of our lives in a moment. But first, we need to clear up a major misunderstanding and myth about the body. And that is the myth of the shell. The myth of the shell. Uh, If you are curious about this, just for your own entertainment, type into an internet search the phrase, The body is just a shell. And then, depending on your level of interest, you can enjoy the various little rabbit trails you can wander down that speak of the body as just a a shell. And you'll find variations of the belief that the body is just a shell from representatives of all sorts of religious traditions, from conservative traditional Christianity to more liberal progressive Christianity to Eastern mysticism to paganism to New Age mysticism to representatives of all the major religions, even when those major religions do not hold to the idea that the body is just a shell the, 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 uh, or the, for the real you, for your soul. The predominant view in our Western world, at least among those who believe that the physical world is not all there is, among those who believe that there's more behind the curtain, is that our truest self is immaterial. And the body is just kind of a temporary shell for the soul. And eventually we will be released from the limitations of our body, and we will live in some undefined, non-bodily state in a heaven that is equally non-material and undefined. I have heard these kinds of comments for more than four decades at various funerals and memorial services, where someone will say, either in a private conversation or, or from the podium, actually, that this person who has now passed away is freed from his or her mortal body, and all its limitations, and it is said as though the person, the true person, has been imprisoned. And now they're free. And yet, this is not a biblical perspective at all. In fact, the biblical perspective is not that we need to be freed from our bodies, but the biblical concern is that when I die, I won't have a body. Then who will I be? Paul speaks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where he says... I think this will be on the screen, where he says, For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Paul here, it'd be fun to spend some time this passage, but we need to move through it. But Paul here is not wanting to be freed from his body; he wants to make sure he has a body, and not be found naked or unclothed, which means to, which means to be without a body. The Christian faith and the Hebrew faith takes the body very seriously, takes this physical world very seriously. The incarnation itself, the enfleshment of God in the person of Jesus is a loud proclamation that this physical world matters, that our physical body matters. The Christian faith is founded on the resurrection of the physical body. This is what Paul is desiring here. His resurrection body, or as he calls it here, his heavenly dwelling. Our life in eternity will not be spent in an ethereal vapor sitting on clouds as disembodied souls. Our eternal life will be a physical life. We will have a body forever. And we will live in a renewed physical earth as physical beings. Now, of course, we are speaking of things far above us here. When we pound nails over our heads, we, we are certain to hit our thumbs. We're all just grasshoppers talking about quantum physics here. So we, we must think on these things with humility. But it is from Greek and Platonic thought and ancient Gnostic heresies and Eastern mysticism that we can get the idea that the body is in our way or an illusion. Or perhaps even from some people's perspective, evil. But this is not a biblical perspective at all. The Bible and Christian thought has always celebrated the body and the physicality of our existence. This physical world matters. Our physical bodies matter. Our body is part of who we are. It's how we know each other. I cannot really know you apart from your body. Even as Mike spoke last week about thoughts and and feelings, our brain is a physical thing that is involved with our thoughts. And our emotions are intricately involved with our nervous systems and endocrine systems or hormonal systems. So when someone is even texting me something, they are using their physical body, their muscular and skeletal system, their nervous system, their endocrine system, we would not be able to know each other apart from our bodies. So as we reflect on this, we realize that there is no spiritual formation of any kind that is not intimately involved with our bodies. We do not just have bodies. Rather, our bodies are an intimate and inextricable part of who we are. Our bodies, as we'll get into in a few minutes, need to be spiritually formed. So to summarize, our bodies uh, are not a shell that encloses the real me. They are not prisons that we need to be freed from. Our bodies are creations of God, and they are central to our spiritual formation. In fact, it is in and through our bodies that we learn how to walk the way of Jesus. So we could play with that for a few weeks, and you may want to reflect on this truth and have some fun conversations with family members and friends and explore all that. But we need to move on, And deal with our broken relationship with our bodies. Our broken relationship that we have with our bodies. Throughout my young childhood and into my adolescence and beyond, I was painfully skinny. And as you well know, children and youth are not at all shy about pointing out physical flaws. And uh, pointing out that which does not conform to societal ideas. Uh, So throughout my childhood and high school, I was referred to by friends, uh, family, and enemies alike as Twig. That was my nickname, Twig. Uh, clever. Through most of my childhood and adolescence, I was constantly overwhelmingly aware of how skinny I was. I was terrified when, any, when whatever group I was with wanted to go to the swimming pool or to the beach because I knew my twig-like body would be exposed for everybody to see. And the ridicule and the pointing and the snickering and you're so skinny that whatever jokes would all come in this, you know, never-ending stream. And each comment hurt and wounded and made me want to hide. And I hated my body. My friend and I bought a used set of cheap weights. We put them down in my grandmother's basement and we met there secretly to try to build our muscles with all those hours of lifting weights. Didn't do a thing. So instead, I learned to be funny. I learned to be the class clown, and I got quite good at it. I received a lot of excellent feedback on that, even though this kept me constantly in trouble with my teachers. It was way worth it to avoid, or at least dampen for a while, the teasing. People would tease me, and I would laugh, or I would make a joke out of it, or I'll throw back something against them, and people would laugh, and I could hide But the shame surrounding my body never went away, ever. And I wish I could stand here and say to you that after I became a Christian and after I became a pastor, that all that body shame was gone, healed by Christ. But that would not be the truth. The truth is that even though I'm in my later 60s and pretty well informed on the biblical view of the body and I know the right things to say and I believe, well, I know those things are right. I still feel every day shame about my body. And I realize how much mental energy I give every day to dealing with that shame. It's not as bad as it once was, but it's there. It would be one thing if I just stayed skinny, but instead of that, I'm, I'm, I'm still skinny in some places and now fat in others. And I still live in this world, as do you, that worships a certain form of of the body that changes but worships a certain form of the body and that worships youth and and beauty and we can simply never, never live up to that absurd ideal. And you'll notice that I'm not really joking that much about all this stuff. In many ways it's funny and laughter usually can serve to expose things and bring us back to reality. But I'm not joking around here. Because I know the pain in this room. I know I'm not alone. Some of us have experienced extreme trauma to our bodies. Sometimes from the hands of uh, people uh, we know. In our childhood or adolescence or adulthood. And this trauma sits in our bodies. It dwells there. Our bodies have been formed by this trauma. And I know that this is a conversation that should require us to take our shoes off because this is holy ground. And the pain and the shame that so many feel, even though we have learned to keep our game face on in public, is severe. We really don't want to open that door in the presence of people who are not willing to take the time to understand. So we're very careful about this area. Through Facebook, I have friends from elementary school who post class pictures. um, And sometimes they stare at the young faces in those pictures. And I remember how at times as a way to avoid the attention around my own body, I would join in the ridicule of the bodies of others. And I look at those pictures today, and I see the pain there. So I just stare at the face, and I see the shame the desire to hide from the camera, and I reflect on the probability that they have carried that pain and shame their whole life long, like I have, like many people have, perhaps most to one degree or another. But here's the difficult truth. There is no real deep spiritual growth apart from learning how to deeply accept and love our bodies. And in addition, perhaps even more destructive, it is very difficult to love other people, to accept other people, to be fully present with another human being, to invite that person into the intimate and vulnerable space of my own life when we ourselves are at odds with our bodies, when we do not love our bodies. The only way I can have a relationship with you is through your body, through my body, physical touch seeing each other, speaking, listening, physical proximity usually. But if I am full of body shame and I hate my body, in some fashion or form I will hide. And this will show itself in my body language and my tone of voice, my face, my openness, my receptivity, my ability to let people in. I cannot love others if I have to protect myself from them. Think for a moment about the first man and woman from the book of Genesis. Out of the countless issues and theological discussions and conflicts in that story, one thing we can know with some confidence is that the first man and woman were created in innocence. Now, whether this innocence refers to a positive holiness and goodness that they possessed or merely the untested absence of evil in their lives, I tend to lean towards the latter. But it does seem obvious to me that the first man and woman, before they had eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, there was this innocence in them. They are untainted with evil. They were uncorrupted. And in a sense, pure. They lived a life in full communion with their creator. There was no alienation. There was no duplicity, no fragmentation of desire, no mixed motivations. They lived before the startling immediacy of reality with singular and undivided hearts. It was paradise. No good thing was held back from them. They lived with something that no human being has truly lived with since, complete satisfaction. And then there is this remarkable truth we are told in this story about this first man and woman. It says the man and his wife were naked and not ashamed. This is a wonderful thing to reflect on. For their physical nakedness was an outward expression of their complete psychological and spiritual nakedness. They lived before each other and before their creator in a posture of complete transparency. Hiding nothing. Total intimacy. And here's the kicker. They felt no shame. Think honestly about this for a moment. Imagine an existence where there is no pretending no energy expended in keeping up the con job that we're trying to pull off on the rest of the world, no pretending, no posturing, no image management, no fear of what others might think, no manipulating, no hiding, no protecting, no body shame, but rather an intimate openness, an immediacy, an open-handed existence, the receiving of others with grace and goodness. No worry about what others might take from you, but simply being with each other and God and not having the slightest twinge of shame. Can you fathom what a world would be like if we lived like that, to experience that for just one day? Well, this is how we are created. This is how things are supposed to be, with this kind of innocence and this shameless relationship with each other where we are naked and not ashamed. This is who we were created to be. And it's a necessary ingredient for shalom in this world, for human flourishing. But this is what we must understand. This experience of shalom, this experience of innocence and the absence of shame is a physical, bodily experience. To do this well, we must learn to love and accept our bodies. We must work at repairing our relationship with our bodies. For we cannot hate our bodies and love others well. And this is a deep and lengthy topic, and I'll mention it again in a moment, and it is for many of us a long and arduous path to be freed from body shame. But there is one thing that all of us can do to address some of this, and that is to simply decide, right here and now, that we will never again participate in jokes and teasing that leads to body shaming. That way of horsing around simply becomes off-limits for us. We don't do it. And when we're around a group of people who are doing this, either publicly or in private conversations, we stop it. We figure out a way to, a socially appropriate way of saying, you know, that's not how we talk about people here. And some may be tempted to say, but they laugh at it. They even make jokes about themselves. Let me say this clearly. They don't find it funny. We don't find it funny. We just have learned to try to deal with it with the least amount of hassle. There was a Baptist pastor from Missouri recently, and I suspect a good number of you have heard about this or seen it. He gave a sermon about how wives should look to Melania Trump as a role model. He said, I'm not saying every woman can be the epic trophy wife of all time like Melania Trump as an image of her appeared on the large screen behind him. Most women can't be trophy-wise, but you know, maybe you're a participation trophy. Men have a need for their women to look like women. Sweatpants don't cut it all the time. Wearing flip-flops and pajamas to Walmart. That ain't going to work. Ain't nothing attractive about that. And men want their wives to look good at home and in public. Can I get an amen? Amen. Didn't expect that. Well, that pastor, fortunately, he's on a leave of absence. Amen. Yeah, I expected that, amen. And he's getting counseling. But I suspect that nothing would have happened if someone in the congregation hadn't posted a video of that sermon. And I doubt there was a shortage of amens from the men in that church. The sexism, the misogyny, the complete cluelessness of how destructive men can be in this area, and later in that sermon, the racism, it was horrendous. But it's not at all uncommon. It was just a grosser example of the values of this world, and as followers of Christ, we need to be better than this. But let's jump into another important issue, and that is that our bodies need to be spiritually formed. Now, at first glance, some may find this an odd concept that my physical body needs to be spiritually formed. But this is just, just a way of saying that in order to walk the way of Jesus well, in order to live fully in the reality of God's kingdom, my body has to be trained to cooperate with my will or my heart or my spirit. Very similar concepts in scripture so that the training of my body is part of my formation into Christlikeness. Another way of saying this is the importance of recognizing that my body has already been spiritually formed. It is the nature of a human being who is alive that our bodies are being formed spiritually, for the good or for the bad. It is unavoidable. We may think of our bodies having a readiness to act as part of their formation. Romans chapter 7 speaks about the sin that dwells in my body. It is my physical body's readiness to act a certain way. And this is not hard to see. When someone gets angry and swears or is violent or yells or throws something or hits someone or kicks a dog, they don't lose their temper. They find it. They access the anger that already resided in their body, a readiness to be angry. When someone gives in to sexual temptation, it's not something that happened to them. Their bodies have been trained towards that. They have a readiness in their bodies, in their neural pathways, in their cell structure, in their uh, uh, endocrine system, their hormonal system. Their bodies function almost automatically. It is their conditioned response. It is our body's readiness to act. The same thing with regards to the use of our speech, our words. It's what happens to our body when someone pulls out in front of us in traffic and we waste a half second of driving time and we want to call down the justice of the universe on this person who is doing something that we've done a thousand times ourselves. It's what happens when someone says something negative about me or critiques what I've done or points to someone who's done it better. That defensiveness I feel is my body, body's readiness to act in a certain way. When I was young, I used to like to kill birds. My uncle had a little acreage in Indiana. When we visited, my cousin and I would go to a nearby swamp where there were all these cattails and dozens and dozens of red-winged blackbirds would sit on top of the cattails, and we would just take his pellet gun and start popping them off. The desire to kill birds was in my body. When my folks said, we're going to go visit my uncle, my body immediately began to anticipate killing birds. My body had been spiritually formed into a bird killer. Well, my uncle died, and we didn't go there anymore, and I went on with my life, and with this new life, there were no opportunities to kill birds. Every once in a while, I would think about it, and I noticed the tiniest spark of bird-killing desire, but it did not live so deeply in my body as it used to. Not too long ago, I was sitting on my deck, and I had stopped reading. I was just sitting there in silence, and it was dust, the gentle glow of the you know, sun that's already below the horizon, and... My heart was at peace. I felt close to God. I felt joy. And there was these manzanita bushes all around me, pretty close, many of them six feet tall and, and taller. And it was getting darker, and the birds were starting to settle in for the night. And all these birds started coming out. And then these rabbits started coming out. I felt like Snow White for a, a, a few minutes. But all these birds just perched themselves around 10 to 15 feet in front of me, and they chirped, and they sang, and they looked at me. And I looked back at them and I enjoyed them. And then it struck me I don't want to kill them. In fact, the thought of killing them disgusted me. It would feel like a crime against God and His creation. I actually love the birds. With regards to killing birds, at least, my body is spiritually formed. Killing birds does not dwell in my body. It would take such an, I'm not. I'm not talking about hunting and all that other stuff. Those who are about to write me emails, just ignore that. I'm just indiscriminately killing things, you know. It would take such an effort that would go violently against my body's formation to kill a bird now. Now, with the proper attention to bodily disciplines, often disciplines of abstention, like fasting, like silence, solitude, where I abstain from food or from talking or from the presence of others, many other bodily disciplines, through that I can cooperate with the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in my body over a period of time where the inclination of my body, my readiness to act, is not towards anger or lust or greed or envy or defensiveness or selfishness or competitiveness, but I cooperate with the power of the grace of God in my life to supernaturally... Transform my body. It is possible over a lifetime of training and us depending on the power of God's grace to become a, a, a person whose body is increasingly ready to forgive, ready to love, ready to care, ready to listen, rather to treat each human person I meet as a sacred miracle. My body, our bodies, actually even this church body, communally, can be spiritually formed in this way. But this is not some hyper-spiritual thing where some of Jesus' disciples said once, where my spirit is willing, but my flesh, my physical body is weak. That may be true, of course. But that's not the goal. The goal of the spiritual formation of our bodies is is that the spirit is willing and my body is strong, formed to walk the way of Jesus. And this, of course, is a lifetime of training, cooperating with the power of God's grace in the formation of my body. So let's take some time, in just a few minutes we have left to get practical. What are some things I can do to attend to the formation of my body? And the first thing I want to suggest, and I know I'm already nervous about this. I know it's going to sound kind of weird, but I think it's important. We must learn to love our bodies. Perhaps the first step is to recognize and admit that I do not love my body so much. That I have a bit of conflicted relationship with it. It may be that I have bought into all the values that this world presents as important and I have prioritized the looks and youth and have taken extraordinary steps to try to live up to those values. And whether or not I've been successful in that or have failed, the real issue is that I've allowed the values of this world to form my understanding of my body. And when I am losing weight or my body is more toned, I feel good about my body. But when I am not doing so well, I am disgusted and ashamed about my body. Regardless, if we think about this carefully, we will realize the very transactional and conditional relationship I have with my body. I love it when it looks good, maybe, but I am disgusted and ashamed when I don't look so good. In my eyes at least, in the eyes of others perhaps. But here's the problem. Since my body is not a shell that is keeping the real me trapped, when I realize that central to my identity, to who I am, is my body, then when I am disgusted and ashamed of my body, I am disgusted and ashamed of myself. Because there is no me apart from my body. And when I am disgusted and ashamed of me, then I am unable to love well and deeply. So here's a practical step of action. And again, this this is going to sound weird, but I decide I'm just going to do it. Because in order to love our bodies well, we have to get into the details of it. So my practical suggestion, and just do this. Laugh at me, whatever you want, but just do it. Is to stand in front of a mirror. You know, probably best to do this alone. But stand in front of a mirror, with as few clothes on as possible, naked, maybe, if you can handle that, and to look at yourself and recognize that what you are seeing is precious to God. And what you are seeing is central to who you are. And you tell that reflection that you love him, that you love her, that you love every part of your body, that you love the imperfections, that you love the parts that tend to bring you sadness and pain and shame. Probably nothing much will happen the first time, except feeling weird. But if you make it a discipline, you may, over a period of time, begin to gradually push away some of the disgusted and shameful thoughts and begin to love this body that is central to who you are. Second practical thing, offer your body to God. Here's where we go back to our scripture passage today and we read again. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And again, I think it is important to do this in a very specific, tangible, and physical way. So here's, here's what we suggest. Go find some time when you're alone and lie down on the floor. Uh, you can lie in the bed if you want, but I, just, I don't think that's as good. So the floor is better, if you can. Uh, you can lie on your back, or perhaps even better, lie out, prostrate, face down, and you pray a prayer like this. Dear God, here's my body. In light of all that you have done for me, I offer my body to you as a living sacrifice. I offer every part of my body, and it would probably be good here to just take some time and name each part. I offer you my hands, my arms, my head, my brain, my face, my mouth, my ears, my, my, my feet, my legs, my sexual organs. Every part of my body, my entire body, I give to you for you to use as you see fit. This may be a wonderful ceremony to practice once a year, more often if you want to, but to physically and literally offer our body to God, as Paul asks us to do here. Third practical suggestion, exercise. I I wish we had the time to delve into this in some detail because this suggestion and the next one, which will be the last one, uh, demonstrate how clearly our bodies are completely connected with our identity, with who we are. When we neglect or abuse, or irresponsible with our bodies, it has an effect on our spiritual formation. For our bodies are less able to give ourselves to others because we are tired, or weak, or we are run down and simply unable to keep up with the ability to give our bodies away. Most everyone will agree that for our spiritual formation, we will need to spend time reading and reflecting on God's word and Praying and other more traditional religious activities. But I would like to suggest that for some of us, a nice healthy walk every day, a hike in the woods, a ride on the bike, or whatever exercise you feel best about may be far more important to your spiritual formation at times than a Bible or even a prayer time. Although a hike in the woods is a wonderful time to pray. But one of the ways we love our bodies and cooperate with the work of the Spirit of God and the spiritual transformation of our bodies is through regular exercise. In doing so, we are declaring that our bodies matter, and they must be cared for and nurtured. And most everyone knows and agrees that exercise does wonders for attitude and joy. When we neglect our bodies, we are neglecting ourselves. And no true spiritual growth can happen when our bodies are neglected final suggestion, and I hope you knew this was coming rest rest it 's very popular in many circles and in religious circles, this is especially popular it 's popular to brag about how busy we are and where it is kind of a badge of honor. In fact, people kind of argue with each other who 's busier than the other. Many people come to me or contact me and want to meet with me, and the majority of The time, their first line is, hey, I I know you're busy, but would you have time to, you know, whatever. And I've trained myself to answer that question with some variation of, no, I'm not busy at all. I'm sorry if I gave you that impression. I'm, I'm not busy at all. I may be active, and I may have times when there are a lot of things going on, but I try to have as much time as possible to be with people that God calls me to. Now, I'm able to respond in that way because I've also trained myself to say no. So that I can have unhurried time to do what God calls me to do. Now I realize, and trust me, I realize that some seasons of life can make impossible demands on us. It just gets crazy. Parents of a newborn, for example, is a perfect example. And sometimes we simply have to accept that this is a crazy season. But if our whole life is like that, ultimately that's our doing. That is my lifestyle choice. And it will be harmful for my spiritual formation. When Dallas Willard was asked what is the most important thing we should be doing in our spiritual life, his answer was usually, you must ruthlessly rid your life of hurry. I think he's right. And the most important discipline we can learn to do this is to make sure that our bodies get the rest they need. Learn to take a nap if you can. You've got tons of people who say, I just can't take a nap. Let's take it, see what happens. You may fall asleep. <laughs> Aim for eight hours of sleep night. Have plenty of unscheduled nights and days whenever you can. Waste time doing nothing. Go find a mother or a father of a newborn and ask if you could rock their baby for an hour or two. And all this we're creating space for our body to be restored and maybe helping a father and mother in the process. And perhaps the greatest gift that God has given us is the invitation to observe the Sabbath. Now there's been much written and argued about with regards to the Sabbath, but what we do know is that the Sabbath was given to human beings as a gift for our bodies. And it is best if we could so organize our lives that one day awake we do as little as possible. Resting, sleeping, napping, these are all ways we teach our body that God is good and that the kingdom of God is real and the kingdom of God is advancing, and we can live into that confidence. Would you pray with me, please? Father, thank you very much uh, for the opportunity to to uh, be together this morning. And uh, something so obvious to us as our bodies, it's weird how we can sometimes not think of them as a central part as who we are. They often feels like they just get in the way. But teach us in, in our redemption, in our uh, being transformed to the likeness of Christ, how our bodies play a crucial part to that. And send us out as bodies into this world to love this world that is precious to you. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.